Welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Thomas Simonsen Balmbra. And my name is Svara Ogur. And today we're talking about Takeshi Miike's audition from 1999, based on the book by Ryu Murakami from 1997, with a script by Daisuke Tengan, starring Ryu Ishibashi as the main character, Shigaharu Aoyama, Eihi Shina as Asame Yamazaki, it's the love interest, Tetsu Shawaki as Shigehiko Aoyama, that's the son, Yun Kunimura as Yasuhisha Yoshikawa, as a business colleague of Aoyama, and Renji Ishibashi as old man in the wheelchair or the uh, former ballet instructor of yeah. uh, Asami. Quite a character. So yeah, this movie is basically about this older guy. He has lost his wife, basically, and he, he lives with his son and he's quite successful in his business and um, his son wants him to get a wife. Because it's seven years since the wife died. Right. And so his business partner suggests that they have an audition for a uh, to be his wife, basically. Hmm. So they set up this fake movie and um, they have an audition. With lots of young women. Yes, 30 women, to be precise. And um, basically he falls for one of these women and uh, trouble ensues. Yeah. He starts to initiate dating with her. And while she initially seems nice, perhaps, it turns out that's not quite the case. No, his, his uh, business partner is very... He doesn't like her mm. at all, instinctively dislikes her it's like he picks up on something but shigaharu doesn't care about that he really likes this woman and he initiates a relationship with her basically yeah and uh well it turns out she's uh, a monstrous uh, type of person uh, turns out she has killed before and uh, she is ready and willing to commit atrocities again yeah, it turns out that she has had an abusive childhood and has severe trust issues. And uh, when she perceives that Aoyama breaks those by loving his son as well as her, then she kind of goes ballistic. Yeah. Uh, but there, there are several uh, There are several, several levels to it too. There's uh, mm. the whole audition process mm. and that just being a scam and just being something he's using to, uh, to find a woman. It's super prevalent in the movie industry to uh, misuse the power imbalance in mm. these situations to get sexual favors to use women. So Asami, she has been abused previously and she finds mm. herself in a situation where, again, her trust is being abused. So mm. she has motives. I wouldn't say it's fair of her to, to do <laughs> these things to the main character, but... Yeah, well, that's interesting because when this film came out, like, you know, several of his other films that kind of uh, suggested there was maybe some misogynistic elements to it or that he himself as a filmmaker, Mike, was misogynistic. You can't really think of it that way anymore, I would say. In like the post-Me Too era, it quite succinctly recreates this sort of situation that's been a lot of talk about in the media where men initiate situations where they have a, a power advantage and um, use it to hook up with women because he's not just doing it to have casual sex with loads of uh, women he's looking for a wife but there is a power imbalance and it definitely feels uh, more like a critique of uh, his position rather than uh, a critique of her as a as a monstrous uh, female in a yeah there's some surprising depth to the the plot uh, because if you just go into it as you want to watch this shocking japanese horror movie mm. that's on a very superficial level but if you sort of just think about the plot and uh, think about the situations a bit deeper, then there's a very interesting dynamic between the characters. Like the main character, you, you do feel sympathy for him. He's, he's not like this sleazy guy at mm. all. He genuinely mourns his wife and mm. he, he genuinely feels a loss. And he basically only takes up dating again. Well, dating. He wants to find a wife again because his son insists on it. Yeah, like, and so you know, his mood is down. Right. Everyone notices he's not his usual self. Like, the real creep seems more like his colleague. Like, during the audition process, mm. uh, one of them mentioned she she has a background in porn. And, and he's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, make a note of her. I'm going to yeah. use her for something else. Use her for but, something else, yeah. That, that so. sequence is really nice. Uh, it's interesting because I read the book as well. And there's a difference in dynamic. Because, you know, in a film, you're confronted with the 
visual. So you like you see the bodies of the characters, what they look like, what they act like. In the book, those things might be described, but you're not really confronted with them continuously as you deal with the narrative. So you're much more focused on Aoyama's uh, internal, you know, perception of the world. And uh, I'd say in the film, the troublesome aspects of his behavior are more clear. And his colleague, um, Yoshikawa, is uh, a lot more sleazy in the film. In the book, uh, the people around him are a lot more concerned about him. I mean, the premise is the same, but tonally it's, it's a bit different. And I think that's quite interesting, actually, because he does, Aoyama, he does become, you know, as he falls in love, he has this kind of like boyish energy. And there's something a little bit um, of putting about his confidence as well, I think. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I feel it's very interesting the way it's done. There are some interesting comments in the beginning of the movie that sort of... I don't know if it's a direct commentary on their situation, but there's... Like, one of the first scenes in the movie is uh, him with one of his uh, editors. Mm. And the editor is like, uh, everyone's unhappy these days. Yeah. Japan is unhappy. Everyone's lonely. Everyone's lonely. And then later on, right before his colleague suggests the whole audition thing, he's also like... Uh, Japan is finished. Mm. Like there's this sense of negativity towards uh, the modern society. Yeah, and so, youth, I would say. Yeah, so it feels like this almost nihilistic approach to dating. Mm. Like, well, everything's gone sour anyway, mm. so let's just, you know, use whatever we can, whatever methods at our disposal to get what we want, mm. basically. That's how I view it. And um, for Mr. Aoyama, he doesn't seem to think about it too much mm. it's more emotional to him than it is some some sort of major like he doesn't have some nefarious intentions like he genuinely seems like he wants to find a good wife mm. but at the same time there's this sense of i want to find his demure talented soft-spoken like shy mm. uh wife and and in that there's this inherent sense of uh, patriarchy and uh, yeah and <laughs> The woman isn't supposed to have any agency. She's just like, uh, he's basically picking a woman out of all these women who are um, auditioning. Mm. And he's picking them out like he's a job interview to be his wife. It makes them feel really disposable. Um, he doesn't seem to question that. or Well, he does feel somewhat bad about it. He comments at one point, feels like we're doing something criminal. Like he yeah. does seem to understand that there's something wrong about it. Mm. So he has a moral compass. Well, he, initially he's a bit skeptical. Uh, right. But then these inhibitions are overcome once mm. he finds the folder mm. of the woman he instantly falls for, Asami. Mm. The dynamism between these characters and these motives is very interesting, even before the sort of revelation that she has a history of doing malicious and horrible things to men. At the same time, she also has a history of being abused mm. by men, so... This uh, situation when they're discussing the audition, they're kind of talking about how to find a wife these days. And he lists up a set of qualities that he's interested in, like someone not too young, preferably like classically trained within piano or classical music or dance or something, and a set of personal features. And he wishes he could just see a list of all women who fit into this category and that he could just pick one. When I saw that, it made me think that this is, you know... Very obviously the pre-Tinder age, because that's kind of that dynamic where you're just swiping through people in a sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, although I would say the power imbalance yeah. there is sort of shifted. Oh, very uh, much, yeah. Where yeah. it's the women who, yeah. who sort of can pick and choose, uh, whereas men sort of... Uh, yeah, and, and then the friend, it's quite funny how uh, Yoshikawa, his uh, colleague, presents the idea of an audition. It's not as if he's thinking a lot about it. He just suddenly says, I know exactly what to do. We'll do an audition. Almost as if this is something he's done before. And he's like super sleazy about it as well and uh, arranges everything and puts it together. Yeah, it seems like he's done it before, but at the same time, it's like, maybe he hasn't done it before, but yeah. the idea of it for both of them, they don't really seem to think much about it. It's like the inherent sort of... Uh, social dynamism of the patriarchy is so deeply ingrained in them and probably of patriarchy of Japanese society yeah, uh, is so deeply ingrained in them that they don't really question it too much. His colleague doesn't question it at all. This is actually one of the things that's interesting book versus film because at the end scene when Asami is conducting her grotesque revenge, she specifically says you've been using this audition stuff to date loads of women without any checks and balances and stuff. Yeah, it's something you guys do. Yeah. So that's very an explicit critique of that kind of power dynamic. That's actually not in the book. So that's something uh, the filmmakers have added. Yeah, um, and it's 
Like it's the whole Harvey Weinstein. It's so, so deeply ingrained in the movie making industry. I think probably in Japan, probably in all countries where movie making exists. Well, and you know, Haraka in general, where people use status or you know control. Or, or yeah, well, like male dominated industries where men hold the power, they will use that power or historically have mm. used that power to uh, gain control over women and. You know, viewing it in that light, it feels very, very current. This yeah, movie. it does. <laughs> and probably more than it did in 1999, where these things were not as much discussed at all. And and, no. and basically, more the butt of a joke mm. than something that was like realistically discussed as a, as a major problem. Yeah, and you can easily imagine how this film could go wrong in displaying this sort of stuff, and it would just feel off today as if something you know, that's uh, uh, that's how society is uh, isn't that funny you know yeah I, I do believe at its release it was actually critiqued as being misogynistic yeah, it was uh, yeah. while now I don't think anyone would seriously critique it that way uh, well it also has a lot to do with I think Asami because she becomes quite grotesquely villainous in a way she's turned into almost a, a villain from a monster movie yes but at the same time you feel that she is severely damaged like, she has been destroyed, yeah. and so her mind doesn't work correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wonderfully portrayed, by the way, by Eishina. Yeah. Just a wonderful performance. Yeah, she's great in this. I mean, it's defined as a horror movie by most people, and Takashi Mika said in an interview that he doesn't care about genre at all, for one thing, but one of the things that really made this into a horror movie was her performance during the torture scenes because of the way she smiles and acts like all childish and stuff. It sort of shifted the vibe of the movie completely. And it makes those scenes just so much more terrifying mm. when she sticks in the needles. and A lot of that stuff is also quite different from the book, actually. Yeah. The whole uh, kiri 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 and a lot of the things that she says and like the dream sequences, they're, they're very specific for the film. And really cool, mm. like the way it shifts into this sort of almost surreal mm. element after he's being poisoned from his whiskey. Stylistically, this film is, is very interesting. The project kind of showed up in the afterwater of the Ringu, the Japanese uh, J-horror. Uh, yeah, films, there was this uh, sensationalism about Japanese mm. horror at the time. And uh, yeah, you had the Japanese company called Omega Project who made a lot of money on that. And they auctioned um, the audition book and got in Takashimika. And uh, I mean, because stylistically, it does have a lot of horror elements as it goes along, but... It's not your typical horror film, but in that context, you know, it's often just uh, talked about as a as a horror film. But it starts more like a um, Sunday matinee, like... Uh, I would say like a traditional, like a dramatic, like a made-for-TV movie, yeah. like typical like uh, Asian TV drama with yeah. the sentimental music yeah. and... Uh, and very sort of uh, generic music, yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, I really like it, though. Yeah. It, it suits the movie perfectly. But that changes, you know, as it goes on. Oh, for sure. Uh, there are these stabs of sort of foreshadowing. Uh, there's one scene where, which I think is really cool. It's just a little detail. But mm. at one point, he's in a taxi. And he's like talking about, oh, I might be late or something. Mm. And it, there's this hard cut to the outside. And the sound cuts really hard as well. Mm. And there's this like intense sound of rain. Mm. And then it cuts right back again with mm. a hard cut on the sound too. Mm. And it's just kind of jarring for yeah. this like seemingly TV drama. Mm. And so you get a bit unsettled by certain details like that. And it's very well done in, in that aspect of it. It happens later on in the movie too, mm. actually, during the torture scene where you cut from the torture and you show the camera is outside. Mm. But this time... There's not a lot of sound going on. But there again, this hard cut between what's going on inside and outside. Really to get your to wrap your head around like the the time, the place, the setting, the characters. It's really it's really nice. Yeah, and it's quite interesting to look at the first scene of the film. This super sentimental thing. You see the young son. It looks like he's come from school. He's made like a school project sculpture with Get Better Mum and he's walking through the hospital and he's heading towards the room and the father's with their wife and she's just said her last thing and has died and the son comes in and it has this sheen of like glow like sort of really tacky sentimental uh, yeah this soap opera yeah. vibe to it it's so sentimental and I think it's used to a very good effect because it lulls you into this full yeah. sense of security about the narrative and then when the tonality shifts, and it does it quite gradually, but then there's a really hard shift in the middle of the movie. And it's well done. Like, the contrasts are so big. 
I mean, it does a lot of things filmatically because it starts very generic. We talk about the music, but also like the editing and, and the composition of the images. Yeah. And one of the places where it really starts to change is actually the audition scene where it has like a montage of all the different women talking. Quite a cheesy montage with this upbeat music. Yeah. But it ends when Asami comes in. Then it starts to cross cut between Aoyama and Asami and gradually getting closer on each of them and building intensity. Yeah, he becomes the subject in the scene more so than earlier when the focus is only on the women. And and he starts speaking for the first time in the audition process. And it's clear that he has this, he's drawn to this woman and his colleague is like... He doesn't feel it at all. Like, he sees there's something chemical about her. He just instantly dislikes her. And there's also Ayama, he reacts to something she's written about how she used to be a ballet dancer but had, like, damage to her hip and uh, gave up a career which uh, felt like uh, accepting death. And Ayama, you know, having experienced his wife dying, he kind of tunes into this and uh, he tells her you're really mature at such a young age and uh, I was very impressed. Yeah, you must live really truthfully or honestly. Or I want to say, too, that Yun Kunimura, who portrays the, the colleague, he's great. I yeah. love him. He's been in so much stuff. He was in Kill Bill, but also The Wailing from 2016 by by Hong Jin Na. And it's, He's such a great character. Yeah, he he has such an expressive face. Just to, you instantly recognize him. You're not always sure where you recognize him for, but he's great. He's probably one of the one of the best portrayals in this movie. Like all characters are very good, but he's just the character of that partner. And from what I gather, a different character than in books? Not significantly, but totally. He's a bit more of like a concerned friend. While in this one, he comes off as just this... I mean, he's concerned later on, but he comes off initially as just this sleazebag. Yeah, but it's not just a sleazebag. Like, there is this... He does really care about his friend. He does seem really concerned for him. There is levels to the character. Yeah. He's not just the sleazebag, although that's his main <laughs> character trait. But, I mean, like, initially, when you first meet him, he, he's kind of just hating on the youth and, you know, suggesting let's have an audition to pick up young women. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it becomes more complex. And, you know, the, the characters are, are really good in this. Yeah, it's great. You know, um, both Yun Kunimura uh, and uh, Ryo Ishibashi played recently together in a Netflix series called uh, The Naked Director. I haven't okay. seen it yet, but uh, I find it funny that they re- reunited again because they do have a sort of good dynamism between them. Yeah, yeah, but they've got, got pretty good uh, resumes. They've done loads of stuff. Yeah, Ryo Ishibashi, he was in he was in some American stuff too, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he was in the American versions of The Grudge. Yeah, Grudge 1 and 2. He played like the Japanese guy. Yeah, so both of them have sort of varied resumes. The lead actress, Ehishina, she's been in some stuff too, but not quite as prolific as the two male leads. Yeah. No, it, it does a lot of other things statistically that I think is interesting. Like the first time you actually see Asami, it's when he's reading her application. And you see a shot of her where she presumably lives and she's turned away from the camera and there's something a little bit airy about it. And it has quite like this J-horror vibe. You know, she has the long hair. She's uh, in profile but turned away the way she's kind of silhouetted. Yeah, in her apartment, you mean? Mm. I find that scene very interesting. There are some really gorgeous shots. Uh, There's one where you just see her back and it's framed in a way that's almost abstract. Really beautiful framing. And then later on, this is when he calls her back after a time of waiting. They've been on one date. And uh, you just see this close-up, and it's like long black hair, like typical J-horror. Mm. But you see her smile, like slowly smiling. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really beautiful framing and just very visually cool. There are some shots uh, that are really cool in this movie. She also, at that point, has a bag, a huge bag with something inside, probably a human being. Yeah, that's when you realize, oh shit, this is some horror shit. This Mm. is some really fucked up. Mm. Like the bag suddenly moves and makes these grunting noises. Yeah, monster noises. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound human. (laughs) It sounds like she has a monster in a bag. But the shift, it comes gradually but it's very it starts to become very clear on the second date because they're having like a drink at this uh, restaurant and there's like patrons around them and they're talking and he's like i haven't asked about your family how's that going and at that point she says everything's fine they recently moved to shiba we'll return to that later but anyway my um, dad likes playing golf yeah <laughs> and suddenly all the patrons are gone and it has a very like very interesting composition where Aoyama is kind of caged in 
in a box by like uh, some glass panelling and there's a lot of lines going both horizontal and uh, vertically around him while she's on like a diagonal plane on the other side of the table and it creates this really strong tension and as I said all the other patrons are gone so it's a very sort of strange dynamic there's a weird vibe yeah the patrons are gone it has a lot of like high intensity and the next image is like a first person point of view and the location has changed but you maybe you wouldn't notice it first before it cuts out but you see her talking to him and she talks about how she used to dance ballet and stuff and in the foreground there's just this blurry element which to me is kind of reminiscent of how you used to have like vaseline right on the camera lens in like the old silent era films to give it like a glow and a softness to it yeah it has kind of like that feel of something very close up to the lens very blurred out softens up the image on the uh, one side and you have these striking colors like the strong reds and the blacks and the white and you cut out and you see that it's quite a stylish restaurant there now and from that point on, you know, it becomes very stylish and like the compositions and here also the music from that point on also becomes more interesting. Yeah. The way it kind of fools you in the beginning, if you just saw this on television, you definitely think this is going to be some soap opera matinee. Not that interesting. Maybe I'll watch it. And it'll just gradually become more and more interesting, more and more complex and intense. Even though it still continues to use some of these more like uh, soap opera-ish visuals, but they're mixed in a way that's very dreamlike. But there are some very interesting visual symbolisms and color symbolisms. Mm. There's one scene right before he's going to propose to her. Yeah, Uh, She's standing on the balcony and watching the sea and Mm. she has on this white dress. And it's like she's she's, she's this innocent woman. Yeah, because they've gone to this resort as a holiday retreat. Yeah, and he's planning on proposing to her and she's standing on the balcony and there's wind and there's the ocean in the background. The shot is very like iconic and she has on this white dress. It's almost like a scene from an anime or something mm, mm. And, and her dress is blowing in the wind and it's very like she's this innocent lost woman. And this is right before all the sort of super intense shit started to happen. Mm. And also there are some very cool scenes with the wife, his deceased wife. Mm. Uh, there are some dream sequences or you can interpret them as dream sequences where she sort of warns him. There's one where she sort of peeks out behind a tree. Mm. It's very cool. And then later on, in one of the sort of flashback surreal sequences once he's been drugged, mm. they're back at the restaurant, the sort of weird restaurant, and, and she is one of the patrons there. Mm. And she sort of leans over and, and he's like, oh, let me introduce my wife. Like in a dream, she's mm. suddenly alive and they have to be introduced. And she's like, I don't like her. Mm. she warns him mm. I find it very like she's just sort of trying to warn him from beyond the yeah that dream sequence is really nice and it's interesting in the book it's very explicit that he's been drugged two times in the film it's not as explicit like when they're at this resort hotel whatever yeah he's sitting there suggesting all like this, this stuff they could do while they're visiting this place and she takes off her clothes and goes to bed and she says keep your clothes on and you know have kind of this intimate talk and he says uh, i love you and she asks him do you only love me that sort of stuff and he kind of promises i only love you he hasn't told her about his son yet this is also much more explicit in the book that he's constantly talking about i should tell her about my son probably oh right because i i didn't really catch that in the movie like the whole uh, uh, well she offhandedly says it again towards the end but it's not like a big point in the film no i didn't sort of notice that Mm. much at all like obviously towards the end there's this Mm. thing where she wants to kill the son but anyway so they have a sex scene he like climbs on top of her and kisses her and then just the um, bedclothes, they just thump over and we cut to something else. And that's the end of their sex scene in the film. And in the book, it's very explicitly told that she's drugged him because he's done something that he shouldn't have. And that, and that was revealing that he had a son and another person he loved. Uh, that sort of stuff is not really very implicit in the, in the film at all, actually. I like how mm. ambiguous it is mm. in the movie, though. Yeah. The, the whole, like, there's a lot of scenes that aren't really explained. Like, mm. once he's drugged... He gets these flashes of her backstory and stuff. Like It's not really explained how all these things work. Mm. But I think that is in the the movie's favor. It makes it more surreal. It makes it more like you're on this fucking wild ride. It's interesting because in that context, it also reveals a few things. Like later on when Asami returns and drugs him, 
he has this longer dream sequence. And then you see the second date again, and he asks her about the family. At this point, she says completely different things. She yep. says she talks about how she was abused as a kid, how her stepfather hated her. She was tortured and stuff. It's so interesting how they put that up as two different things. Has he like misremembered earlier? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, or is he imagining this or what, what's going on? And another thing I really like about the sort of surreal mm. dream imagery is towards the end of these dream sequences, mm. like the woman he's talking to keeps changing. Like at one point, yeah. it's his secretary. Yeah. We apparently had a relationship with. Like there's some hints about that earlier mm. in the movie. She, some she long glances. tries yeah. to talk to him, but there's never anything directly said about mm. it. And uh, his son's temporary love interest at one point. Like the woman keeps changing. Mm. And I think the point of it is, is to show that he as a man has been terrible towards women, mm. really. And it shows the same dynamism of this power imbalance. And he's sort of lusts or feelings towards these women yeah, as disposable objects. Yeah, guilt. It's not just like this judgment of mm. him, but, but more like him feeling guilty about these things. Mm. It's really well done mm. and, and the visuals of it are so cool. Yeah, because what it does a lot, it changes an element when it shifts the parallel shot. Like you cut from one to the other and there's a new element that's come in. And that might be that the actor has changed to, let's say, the secretary instead of Asami uh, giving him uh, oral sex. Or it can be this big bag with a person inside suddenly appeared behind her. That scene is really dynamic and interesting and really like has a cinematic flair that stands out very strongly. At that point, there's no doubt that this is like a filmmaker who's really conscious about what he's doing and he has an artistic uh, sensibility. Yeah, there's a great artistic flair to that sort of sequence. And you really feel like at that point, like viewing it today, you really feel the sort of implicit agency of womanhood mm. in this scene is mm. basically like I view it or, or how I felt when I viewed it you can't feel this as you view it as sort of these women are sort of facets of Asami in a sense, like her feelings of negativity and resentment towards men. Mm. And there are all these different lenses of viewing men through, like her relationships with men. Mm. And it feels very competently put together as this sort of crescendo towards the end of understanding her feelings. And actions. Yeah, an agency as a woman. Mm. She's taking control of her own life. Like there's this scene where you see this man in the bag who she has cut off three fingers and one ear and mm. his tongue. And she's sort of feeding him like a dog. With her own vomit, has to be said. Yeah, her own vomit. And that's sort of a reversal of women, you know, always being referred to as bitches or as dogs. Mm. Or like they're always in this servile sort of uh, have often been described and often like denigrated as dog-like servile creatures, mm. often not even being described as humans, right? So in, in the lens of womanhood through the ages, it's this... Really cool sort of reversal of, of those symbolic roles, which is clearly intentional. Mm, it's very interesting. And, you know, she does have a vulnerability to her that's um, quite striking. Like when she asks him to love her and only her, she's lying on the bed looking up at him and the angle is kind of awkward and he's a bit casual about it. To him, I think it's like just a romantic thing. Oh, yes, uh, I love you. You're amazing. But yeah. to her, it's existentially deeply important and like the challenge of another person also loved by him yeah there's a lot more vulnerability to her than uh, yeah but it seems to come from this mm. deep pit of not being loved and being mistreated yeah. all her life and having nobody to turn to mm. and having nobody to confide in mm. she is so inherently broken mm. that these things matter so much to her that when he is sort of flippant about it it takes her into the mode of being malicious back mm. and trying to regain what little control she can have. Mm. And her only sort of method of doing this because she's so broken is mm. like through these grotesque, violent actions. But what's your thought? I mean, the film kind of implies it a little bit, but it's up for interpretation whether or not this was sort of a goal a little bit all along or that he kind of triggered it in her did she like go into that situation knowing that yes this is a guy that i would like to hurt and harm or was she triggered by his you know later behavior i don't know i think she probably had some conflicting motives mm. there like i don't think it's simple 
Would you think she, she was genuine in her affection for him? Or did she have affection for him? It's difficult I think, to say. <laughs> I think she sort of clung to it. I don't know if it's real or not. I think to her, it's probably impossible to tell because she's so broken mm. and so psychologically ruined. Like she, she seems incredibly mentally unstable, right? But because of stuff that's been done to her. So it's hard to say. Like at some points, it feels quite genuine. But in this sort of psychotic way where it's not really based on mutual feelings. It's more based on this need for being cared for, for being loved. Like, there's this sense of loss in her, I think. It's not really about him. So, in that case, he's sort of interchangeable, I think, to her. Mm. Because it's more about his role as this sort of avatar of masculinity. Because mm. yeah, she has done this before. And specifically, the guy who's in the bag, who was presumably her producer, as far as I understand, uh, who had another lover whom she murdered quite viciously and cut up the body in lots of pieces, but also left some of his pieces, his tongue through his fingers and air. Yeah, they found an extra three fingers yeah. in the air and a tongue. <laughs> it's so funny, the scene where this sort of <laughs> resident of the apartment building yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. the bar is, he's explaining this horrible shit to yeah. him because he's trying to find her. And when he talks about the tongue, there's this hard cut to the tongue and it's sort of moving and making this noise. Yeah. <laughs> Flopping around on the floor. It's so funny. It's it's so Takashi Mika. Yeah. <laughs> I really like this neighbor as well because he's kind of like initially a little bit hesitant because he's standing on the corner and he's, he's about to go several times, but then he gets more engaged and he becomes really gossipy. Yeah, and, like uh, this really, like not a nosy neighbor, but more like this gossipy sort of wants to tell. Uh, like yeah. he really wants to tell about the gory details, but yeah. it's like, it's not polite. He's a funny character. Yeah. Like it's one of the funniest scenes in the movie. It's not a very funny movie. It's mm. It has this quite somber tone and Takashi Miki is very funny. So it's it's nice to have some of these things making the movie a bit less dreary. But it's not really a dreary movie. Like, the themes are quite dreary, but it's very interesting visually and, like, acted very interestingly. Yeah. And, you know, it, it gets really intense. It's really engaging. Uh, like, for a horror movie, if you view it as a horror movie, I didn't find it scary. No. But it's very... It's emotionally unsettling, and the torture scenes are gruesome. Well, I mean, it's not scary in, like, a typical horror film fashion, but, like, the scene with... Asami in the end when she's in this like almost fetish costume of a nurse and she has these long needles and she keeps saying deeper deeper kiri 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 yeah and she, it's so horrible and she's, and drugged she's him. smiling and she's being almost yeah. infantile and she's she's drugged him so his nerves are on end so he feels he can't do anything but he feels the pain much stronger and this is actually the only part of the film where she seems joyous she's like in control she's smiling and very like engaged and exuberant almost in this and she she says specifically only through pain can you know yourself when you've had like intense amounts of pain and you're wounded that's when you're kind of confronted with who you actually are it's almost as if she wants to help him see himself in a way it's funny because one of the things his colleague says as they're discussing the audition mm. he says that happy people can't act well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a nice throwback to that sort of theme, that you sort of need this misery. You need this uh, crucible of misery. But I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think the reason she's happy here or seemingly exuberant mm. is because she has agency. It's mm. one of the few situations where she has agency. Mm. She doesn't have it in normal society. Mm. So she creates these horrible situations, but in an attempt to regain her humanity and, and sort of agency as a woman. And as a result, she probably feels really good about it. I don't think she's a psychopath, but I think something is just inherently deeply broken within her. Well, what's the distinction? The distinction is that a true psychopath knows what they're doing is wrong. She doesn't seem to do that. She has this childlike way of, I'm going to cut your foot off so you can't disappear from me because I love you. That's also a reference to her ballet teacher whose feet are badly damaged. But you're right. I mean, the film often cuts to her, specifically towards the end in the dream scenes, cuts to her being a grown-up and being a child in the, like, the same interchange. And... Yeah, she seems like a child. Like her mind is the mind of a child. She's emotionally very underdeveloped. Mm. She does bad stuff, but it comes from a place of anger and of being mistreated so much. Like she wants to hurt the son. She doesn't really think about that, I think. She just feels it. That's why I say she's not a psychopath because she's reacting instinctively, impulsively. She's more like a paranoid schizophrenic than a true psychopath mm. or a sociopath. Mm. 
she is clearly mentally not all together there. It's fun when the son comes home while she's torturing him and she hears him come in and she kind of scuttles away almost like an animal. It's kind of humoristic, I thought, like her mode kind of changes a bit. Uh, yeah, but she seems to function at a very basic level at that point. Yeah. I really liked how unpredictable the movie is. Mm. This is my first time watching it and I have watched Takashi Miku movies earlier and I really like his work. So I enjoyed that he wasn't, for instance, like killed immediately to the sun because that might be like the obvious, like she's this horrible killer and she's going to kill and she's just going to like, that would be like the darkest ending, right? Yeah. She killed the dog though. She did kill the dog, which again, sort of to me is an echo of the dog symbolism mm. in this movie. She is sort of uh, killing that role. Of course, I find it horrible because that dog was so cute. It was a little puppy. Yeah. It's just terrible. In the book, it's actually worse because in the book, while he's uh, lying there unable to move, she places the dog in front of him and she takes her cutting saw wire around the feet of the dog. Yeah. And she does a couple of those feet. So there's this website called Does the Dog Die? Oh, yeah. And it's for animal lovers who wants to know before watching a movie. And if you don't want to watch Dogs Die, then don't watch this movie. Yeah. You don't actually watch it being killed. You just see it dead. But yeah, I know for some people that's extremely traumatic. Yeah, that's a good sight. It's a good way to navigate what kind of films. Yeah, like uh, for, for animal lovers mm. and dog lovers. It's nice to be able to avoid that stuff. Like, I think for many people to avoid, like, really triggering stuff. Also for, like, people with fears of spiders. There are, like, often mods for games, video games, yeah. where you can remove spiders because <laughs> some people have, like, terrible arachnophobia. Yeah. So it's I nice never thought about that. That's no, quite funny. <laughs> it is funny. What do they replace it with, like, a clown? or? I a... think in, like, Skyrim you can replace them with wolves or something. Yeah. But, yeah, typically, like, some generic enemy. It would be nice if it was clowns instead, like another phobia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of, uh, oh, you hate spiders? We'll remove the spiders. And then you're just attacked by these terrible clowns instead, which is, to me, much more terrifying. Yeah, a lot of what really... I have seen this film before. It's a while since, though. And one of the things that really struck me is that I'm very impressed with this movie is, like, the stylistic choices. I, w- I want to put out a couple of kind of references to horror cinema that's that's quite nice when uh, Ayama Asami has disappeared so he's, he's looking for her this is after the resort scene she's disappeared after they've had sex and he doesn't know what's happened he can't reach her but he finds her old ballet school which is you know boarded up abandoned except there's uh, the old teacher there who's a nasty old man and that scene is lit almost like a Dario Argento Suspira type thing with like these big flashy red lights. Um, yeah, it's like a theater scene. Mm. And uh, it has kind of that vibe as well with the acting. It's kind of like stylized a bit and uh, he's like a real character. Yeah, he doesn't feel like quite grounded at mm. all in the way mm. like the main characters are. Mm. And it's clearly intentional and it's clearly used mm. to a cool effect because... It really contrasts to that sort of uh, sense of like soap opera, mm. everyday reality stuff that's going on in the in the start of the movie. You you get this sun like suddenly you're thrown into this surreal world. Yeah, it's, it's very starkly different. Right. Even though you'd had some elements before that are you know stylistic, this one like really shouts out, "This is a horror movie in a sense." Uh, but there's another thing I quite liked. And that's when Asami goes to his home, just before like the torture scene. You have this first-person point of view coming into the home and walking up the stairs. And it almost has this vibe of like the Evil Dead films, like Sam Raimi using like this quick first-person with growling noises through the forests. It has kind of like that vibe, like an evil spirit coming in. And she almost is like a personification of destructive, scary force that's uncontrollable at that stage. Yeah, it's it's reminiscent of Antichrist, I think, mm. the sort of force of nature that the unnamed woman mm. is in that movie. Mm. And it's sort of coming from a bit of the same place, I think, this sort of sense of centuries of injustice being summed up into one character Mm. sort of and them responding to it in a horrible but very human way it is interesting and it does have so many levels this movie of symbolism and multiple meanings and you can really dig into this movie absolutely yeah and you know i I would suggest reading the book it's a breeze to read it took me like a couple of days whilst i was doing a bunch of other stuff as well you know it's not a subtle book the film I think is a little bit better with some of the psychology 
some of the dynamism and also like the, the mood two element is much more explicit in the film but like it has some some great elements like it, it lists up the different types of questions they're going to have at the audition that's really nicely done and uh, it tells some backstory about Ayama after he lost his wife how important his relationship is with his son in terms of you know he hasn't been for him before but uh, now that his wife's dead he's going to spend time on that and it's interesting to see because it doesn't have like the stylistic change or dynamism of the film and to see how an adaptation can like enrich your work it's uh, worth worth to see i think yeah um ryo murakami really liked the adaptation too mm-hmm. and he wanted him to adapt uh, another one of his works which still hasn't happened apparently it's been impossible to get funding for it because it, it's not a sci-fi movie or something like that which appeals. i think it was a slightly more acclaimed book what's it called um coin locker babies the, yeah because he did want mika to adapt it but they didn't get the funding for it yeah mika wanted to do it as well apparently because it's a story that centers around two boys so it's just difficult to get funding for mm. basically it doesn't fit any niche in mm. the japanese mm. movie market and it, it wouldn't sell in the domestic japanese market so we would have to be internationally distributed and it's probably not the best time now either for that I hope it does do it, though. I, I think it would be very interesting. Well, you know, Mika's career has changed a lot. And you mentioned before that he's kind of genre agnostic. Well, he says he doesn't think about it at all. And you can you can see that in his films, because a lot of his films, he mixes up genre. And like it's kind of like a musical film, but it's also like a zombie film. It's also like a family drama, like uh, Happiness of the Katakuris. And, you know, he has Shinjuki Western Django, which also is kind of like a musical. It's also like a Western, but it's also like this Japanese anime. And he has Imprint, which is like ostensibly a horror thing, but it's also like an old Japanese folk tale. Mm. So he, he does seem to play with these things in a way that's very eclectic this film audition it was kind of the beginning of his like international fame it showed at festivals and became a big hit and in the aftermath of that his films really became like a focus in the west yeah because this movie was a lot more popular in the west Mm. it wasn't really popular in the japanese domestic Mm. market it was a lot more popular in the west and uh, as far as i know takashi miku was asked about it and he was like i don't really know what the western Mm. audience wants (laughs) and I don't want to think about it when making movies because that's just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but he has done a, a shift, like, because in these, like, late 90s, early 2000s, he had this, he was making, you know, up to seven or eight films a year. And there were often, like, Yakuza, yeah, genre and horror things. Um, it's, of course, mixing up genre as well. But then after a few years, he went more towards, like, two or three films a year. And he started doing more, like, classic samurai stuff and a lot more kids movies and video game adaptations he doesn't do so many of these really intense like horror genre bending stuff currently as far as i've seen you know it's impossible to keep track of all his films but like that's a general kind of and i I think like he wasn't concerned with the label of being horror maverick or anything like that he's just interested in projects as it comes along in a sense yeah to him, I think that's really what it's about. He's interested in a project. I think to a lot of Westerners, he's viewed as this sort of king and in many ways originator of torture porn and like mm. these horrible scenes. But I don't think that's really what he's about. He's about the stories and these scenes come about in the movies as important elements, but it's not what the movies are about. No. A lot of Western directors have referred to him as an inspiration. And, you know, in the, the time before, like, the torture porn genre kind of popped up, you know, his films had been quite prevalent. So he's definitely had a lot of influence, I think. But also just as being a genre agnostic. He has been very influential, but I think to a lot of people who have been influenced by him, it's mainly because of his extreme stuff, his extremely violent stuff. Yeah. And that's cool by all means, but I find him more compelling than just that. You know? Yeah, he's a nuanced filmmaker. For sure. But he's also, you know, very hit and miss. There's a lot of films. You never know what you're going to get. It might seem like an interesting premise and it falls flat. And it might seem kind of boring and it's actually quite interesting. And there's so many of them that you never quite know when you see a new Takashi Miki film if this is going to be the shit or just shit. Yeah, I like that about him because he's willing to do so much different mm. stuff. Like, incredibly different stuff. More so than almost any movie maker I know. He's, he's willing to do almost anything. And that's a good part of what makes him so fun, but also part of what makes a lot of his movies like huge misses. Mm. Well, how many of the other directors that we talked about have also done like kids' movies and video game adaptations? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I would really like to see more of them do 
that yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you imagine, uh, like, David Lynch doing kid stuff? Yeah, or, like, Gaspar Noe's, like... New Disney Channel movie? Angry Birds movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would be interesting to see. Yeah, but that's what makes him interesting and just... I'm so glad he's there making mm. movies, doing whatever. It's good to have Takashi Miki out there doing his thing. I concur. It's funny, when the end credits hit in, it kind of starts off with this upbeat Japanese pop song. Uh, that's totally quite uh, different. And I was, you know, thinking, well, what's she saying? Does it have like a, a relevance? And she has a few lines in English. And the English lyrics are, I don't want to go insane. I don't want to abuse myself. I don't want to risk my emotions. I want to know who I am. And it kind of has like an Annie Lennox Eurythmics vibe to it. Quite nice, actually, I thought. Because it really puts you in the position of Asami. And I feel like the film does that towards the end. It kind of emphasizes her more than Aoyama, who's he's just kind of a, a boring guy, really. And her, you know, tragedy becomes much more prevalent towards the end. Yeah, it does become more prevalent. Um, like I said earlier, he's almost interchangeable as a main character. He like is very well played and stuff, mm. but he's not that interesting a character. He has a function in the narrative, mm. and it's really about uh, Asami. It becomes more apparent through those lyrics. Mm. Yeah, and another thing that is really nicely done in the film, and this is a really succinct adaptation from the book as well, it's her voice because you know it's delicate and it's soft. But it's also cold and somehow unfeeling. In some way, there's something very feminine about it. It's very kind of downplayed. And the more you get to know her, the more like there's something intense about it. And specifically at the end, because as she, she's been torturing Ayama and the son comes home and she goes after him with this kind of spray. Um, like uh, mace or Yeah, room? mace, yeah. And he scuffles up the stairs and manages to kick her down. This is actually one of the few things I don't like about the movie, perhaps the only thing, and that's the sound effect when she falls, which is like a really like slocky horror. It just feels off. But anyway, she hits the floor and she breaks something, probably in her neck. But she's looking at Aoyama. And a few moments later, when he's starting to regain more control and the son's called the police, he looks at her and she's looking straight at him. And she's repeating a few of the lines that she'd said earlier about waiting for him to call and never had anyone to talk to. She's always been alone. And in that setting, when she's like lying there and she's revealed like her, you know, monstrous self and saying those things, her voice just becomes quite chilling. That resonates, you know, if you saw it again, you'd think of it as well. And um, you also hear like a voiceover him repeating, it'll be hard for you to get over it, but you'll find one day that there's a wonderful life. And that's why we all continue with our lives. Yeah. I think that's just her performance is really the standout mm. sort of performance in, in this movie. Mm. She's really good because she does play convincingly in the scenes with him to the point where you find it believable that he doesn't understand her sort of mental state. But at the same time, her voice and her demeanor, and there's something really chilling and unsettling about her, even in the most normal scenes with her. And uh, she does have this charisma, this sort of thing about her that's very hard to define, but it's very unsettling in this movie. Mm. And it's great, just really well done. So, Thomas, do you have any recommendations this week? I do, I do. It's a song, there are often songs. And today, it's a song everybody's heard. It has the distinction of being something that's, you know, extremely broadly known, but also deeply unpleasant. And if you haven't heard it for a while, you should check it out again. It's The Smith's Meat is Murder, which, you know, is like an anthem for vegetarians and vegans and stuff. It's a really good song, but it opens with like these factory... The slaughterhouse sounds and stuff? Yeah, slaughterhouse sounds like the machines and the screams of the animals. And the lyrics are, you know... He says that it could have been the screams of humans and he's really sad and it's kind of has this tragic vibe to it. And yeah, it's genuinely unpleasant and it's very heartfelt. Yeah, it's a great song. So, you know, if you haven't heard it for a while, you should check it out again because it's great. Yeah, and you know Morrissey, who wrote the lyrics, he's also uh, been a vegetarian for many, many years. Yeah. And he's also a deeply unpleasant person, a true contrarian and just an all-around asshole. But he, 
has some good uh, good lyrics and, and melodies and songs. So yeah, and he's one of the first big known popular vegetarian celebrities. Um, yeah, and for its time, it's quite a unique piece of music, mm. like piece of lyrics, because it's from like the early eighties or something. Eighty mm. five was when the album came out. Yeah, I would say any time is good to check out some Smiths. But yeah, it's an unpleasant song. How about you? Uh, you have something nice for us? <laughs> yeah, I do. It's a book by, uh, well, he, he uses a sort of a, a pseudonym or used, he was from the uh, 19th century. It's a book called The Golovlyov Family by Mikhail Yevgrafovich Saltikov under the pen name Shadrin. It's an incredibly unpleasant book and it's quite funny. Mm. And it centers around this family of the landed gentry in Russia in the late 1800s, uh, right before and a bit after serfdom is abolished. So it's about this, this old sort of matriarch of the family and her huge estate. Mm. And she's like very, very, she's very interested in like keeping this estate going, uh, having it prosper and stuff. And eventually her, her son takes over and he's just the most horrible character. His nickname is the Bloodsucker or Yadushka, which is a sort of a Russian diminutive form of Judas. Okay, okay. <laughs> He's like always sucking up to his mother, but his mother is like, she doesn't know what to think about him. She mm. sort of hates him. He's like obnoxious. He's just this terrible person. Is he a treacherous sort? Yeah, for sure. He's like, he talks a good talk, but he treats people badly. And he's like, the whole family is just filled with these fucking characters. Mm. And it's funny and it's just so unpleasant. The mm. whole family dynamic is so horrible. It's well written and it's well worth checking out. And it's quite unknown of Russian literature. Like, he's famous in Russia, but mm. in the West, most people just know of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and stuff. But it's well worth checking out. Uh, how did you come about? Uh... I think I actually found it through Goodreads, like lists of Russian literature mm. that's worth checking out. So yeah, I, I think I found it through a review there or something. I actually don't remember, but I haven't actually met anyone else who's read it. Mm. So uh, yeah, do check it out. It's the Golovlyov family, G-O-L-O-V-L. Y-O-V family by Shedrin. It's what he goes by his pen name. Well, we'll put links in the description, of yeah. course, so that you can find these things if you like. Now, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. We also have an Instagram where we put out some of the artwork and have like daily quizzes. Guess the movie where we put out still frames from movies and uh, it's an unpleasant film, but which one? And we have a list over at Mubi of unpleasant films, if you're interested in seeing more of these films. It's not a complete list, but there's lots of unpleasant things there, and probably things we're going to show later. Yeah, we'll have links in the description. And the music for this episode was made by Jus Garning and Sveta Orgol, the band Umulium. My name is Thomas Simonson Bambra, and the next episode we will be talking about Takeshi Miike's Ishii the Killer. So you can watch that in preparation. And we'll be back in two weeks' time, I expect. Yeah. Oh, that's a glorious Yakuza romp, that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's something special for it, sure. It is. Kind of like a mix of the crazy of Vista Q and the intensity of Audition. Yeah, and it's peak Takashi Miike. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, we'll look forward to that and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.